I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gemwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Meaning is a key element of designing experiences as in life. And a major challenge then is to understand how people construct and achieve meaning. Now, not only in their personal meaning, what something means to you or what you think the world means, but also a shared sense of meaning that can be generalized across individuals. Now, if you study the question of meaning in language, you'd know that there are a lot of theories that posit their own explanations of how this takes place. And the truth is, many a career has been lost wading into these linguistic theory battles, so we don't recommend that you do that. Not at all. And the truth is, no intellectual prisoners have really been taken. Brutal altar, folks. It is. Though, and through this fog of academic war comes a beacon of hope, though, in the form of Max Lauer's book, Keeping Those Words in Mind, How Language Creates Meaning. In the book, Max explores how we make meaning through language, in language and words that everyone can understand. And we're saying this not facetiously, it is actually quite nice. It is a very accessible book. And based on his own cutting edge research, Max helps us understand how words work in the mind, how people create meaning, and what that means for experience design. And you know, Max is one of those people that does a lot of stuff and makes you feel bad by comparison, not because he's not a nice guy. He's an extremely nice guy, which only serves to make you feel worse about not nearly accomplishing as much as he has, because he's done a lot of stuff. And we try to get into it as much as possible. And along with his fantastic book, which is really accessible and interesting to read, we also discuss the efforts he's been leading at creating transformative learning experiences through the integration and development of new pedagogical technology. From things like augmented reality to virtual reality to these big rooms called caves to using artificial intelligence as teacher's aides and to even never giving any tests, Max talks about his work in pushing the boundaries of how students learn and how they connect with learning, how to make transformative changes through education, which as an educator, we would all like to be about. So we engage in this critical examination of the educational system overall. We talk about some of the biggest challenges in higher education and really achieving transformation. We also talk about how technology is meant to enhance and supplement the work of education rather than just replacing. As we talk about, it's always the right tool for the right job and not getting infatuated with any newest technology that comes along, but in being smart how we deploy it. It was a really great chat. Max knows a lot of stuff. He's done a lot of interesting work, and we hope you enjoy it. It was, it was, it, you know, flying was horrible. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I did not, I did not enjoy it at all. And it was, it was funny to hear that the uh, flight attendant still felt the need to instruct us not only how to use a seatbelt, but also how to wear a mask properly. Mm. <laughs> As if somehow this was something that uh, was, was poorly understood, you know, in terms of how a mask works. Oh, we're only uh, more than a year in the COVID situation, I guess. It takes us time to learn, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how, does well, this, I, how does this work? Do I put up my head? No. I, I get frustrated with people trying to still figure out how to share their screen on Zoom. Like, really, you don't know how that happens? It's just the button right there. Oh, I guess you can't find that button. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, actually, I was thinking about, while well, I was flying to, to uh, for my trip, I was reading George Carlin. And I don't know, Max, if you're familiar with George Carlin and all the comedian? No. Okay. Well, he, he reminded me of you as I was reading his autobiography because he had the whole thing called the seven words you can't say on television. <laughs> and, and one of the things he was talking about, and I'm not going to say these words, but folks, well, that's what I was hoping for. Now you're going to give the list. Of the <laughs> words that we're it would just be beep, 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 beep. Uh, but you know, one of the points that he was making as he was developing his comedy, was that words have meaning and context. And mm -hmm. these words, you know, words that might be um, fine separate, when you put them together, <laughs> they take on a whole different meaning. And when they're said in different contexts, in different exactly. ways, with different intentionality, they have yep. different meanings. So I'm like, well, 
George Carlin uh, and Max are, are basically like George Carlin is like, you know, cog- cognitive linguist, like, like Max's. Hmm. Um, I go beyond the seven words though. Right. <laughs> oh, are there more I have to worry about? That makes it. Oh, there are more to worry about. <laughs> um, you want to hear them now or shall I give them after the broadcast? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because he also did a whole, a whole thing on, on the word shit. And he has a whole rant mm-hmm. on this about how you can say it in some places. You can't say it on television, but all the places you can say it in all the ways, all the contexts, then you, then you can say it. Mm. And, you know, looking at your book, you know, how yeah, keeping those words in mind, how language creates meaning. It was, it was a fascinating read. I haven't gone all the way through it, but how it's bringing accessibility to this rather complicated concept of language, meaning, culture, context, society and well, relationship yeah. so 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 I've, I've always wondered how we can keep so many words in mind i mean literally i mean when we are speaking you hear sort of random sounds coming out of my mouth and you are able to extract meaning out of that and as you say uh, gary that uh, those words in context might even have a different meaning so i've i've always been fascinated by the question how are we able to do this and, and if you then look at um, particularly the psychological theories, but also theories in other fields, people have tried to explain that ability that we have um, from training. I mean, it's our parents that taught us, or, well, it's the brain that does it, or it's the neural networks in our brain that do it, or it's the, um, the environment that uh, takes care of it. And I've always been surprised by the fact that uh, the most obvious solution has hardly been mentioned, and that's the language system itself. Mm. Yeah, that was something that, that I'm sorry, go ahead, Gary. No, as I say, it's, this stuff matters in real ways. I have one of my colleagues is a, a linguistic anthropologist named Dan Everett, who yeah. had an ongoing massive feud with Noam Chomsky, and it's like a blood uh-huh. feud. I mean, uh-huh. these they like legitimately don't like each other. That's right. <laughs> and it's over theories of language. I mean, you know, it's, you know, you know, great, you know, universal structures with Chomsky versus Dan's work, looking more at the emergence of language and context and culture as uh-huh. not something embodied in a mind, but embodied in practice. And I'm a conversation analyst. So I look at it from a Harvey Sachs, Her- you know, Harold Garfinkel perspective, which is very similar. And so on the one hand, this matters immensely to academics, but one of the things I liked about your book is how, why it matters to everybody and why it should matter in practical ways and not just academic ways. Well, plus, I, I, I guess the book is in that sense, or I guess I am in that sense, kind of a softy, um, rather than um, just arguing that a theory is wrong, uh, because the, the examples that you gave are, are accusing each other of their theories are wrong. Um, you might instead um, start asking the question to what extent theories are complementary. I mean, mm. the scholars have spent um, uh, a lot of time and effort on constructing these theories, usually based on evidence. Um, so there must be some truth in it. Um, and rather than just dismissing, I mean, perhaps for sort of a political academic discussion, it might be worthwhile. But at some point, you have to sort of try to reconcile different theories. And that's what I've um, try to do in this book. Plus, I've tried to do that for a general audience because quite often these um, uh, these theories that basically say something about who we are, um, our um, humankind, um, are very, very academic. And most, uh, I mean, the average person on the street, uh, and that's the majority because there are some people live, like me living in an ivory tower. Um, those people should particularly be informed about these many aspects of language, culture, etc., including artificial intelligence, psychology, anthropology, philosophy, etc., but in a playful way. I mean, nobody wants to read an academic um, uh, article or a book. Not even me. No, no, I, no, no one does. <laughs> really that, is true. that is true. Um, you know, so I think one thing that's really interesting that I, I liked, both the way that you began to frame your argument and in general, too, that uh, there's, they're not extremes, but on one level, it feels like that, that the way that you, you kind of ground the book, there's these four, I don't know, originary theories, right, of how children learn language, right? You know, whether they're training or grounded in, in perceptual what's out in the world. And so I thought it was, it was a really fascinating way to to begin how we think about how we learn language and then Ultimately, what you help us do is extend that to why that would work for training artificial intelligence too, which I thought was very cool. 
because A, children are relatable in the sense that we all were one and or have them. And so mm-hmm. we think about how do we learn language and then what, you know, what are the, the sort of the concrete ways in this case, like training or instinct that we might have and how does that apply to AI? So I wonder if you could walk us a little bit through just, you know, briefly these, the kind of four ways that you ground this in terms of training and, and networks sure. and, and grounding. Yeah. So, so if you if you ask yourself the question how children learn language in the early 20th century, uh, people said, well, it, it must have to do with training. And that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, our parents are basically um, uh, giving positive feedback uh, when we speak our first words. Now, you can argue they give positive feedback on anything we say, um, but it's kind of useful if I speak to you that there is a sign of understanding because that um, enfor- reinforces me that I'm saying the right things. So that's one theory. And then uh, Gary already mentioned uh, Noam Chomsky. Chomsky argued mm-hmm. now that's that the theory of Skinner, the behaviorist theory, is just utterly wrong. That's not the way it works. Instead, we should even exclude meaning. We should look at the structure of language, the syntactic structure. And that has everything to do with a hypothetical language acquisition device. Um, There's a language instinct, as Steven Pinker would call it. And that makes sense because humans, um, more than any other species, have a complex language system as humans have. But then in the 1980s, people said, well, uh, there might be a language instinct, but what is actually happening? And perhaps it might be the neural network that is doing things. And if you now look at artificial intelligence, neural networks indeed are able to produce or comprehend language in a computer kind of fashion. And then um, even later, sort of the end of um, last century, beginning of this century, um, there was a group of people who said, no, they got it all wrong. Meaning from language doesn't come from language. Um, Instead, it comes from the environment. It comes from our embodiment or the perceptual simulations. If you consider these four theories, you might say, well, that sort of makes sense. Perhaps it's a combination of them, except that there's one problem. Recent research shows that what we, we thought we are very smart a very smart species. We are rational, um, uh, a rational species. And there's more and more evidence that, as Nick Chater called it, calls it, our mind is flat. So we're mm-hmm. not that strong at things. Um, often when we make decisions, we decide that uh, we come up with the explanation in hindsight. So imagine you're at a bar, you see the most wonderful woman of your life. Um, you're not going to um, check what the positive aspects are and the negative aspects. You just walk up to her and see whether it's a match. Or when you buy a house, you basically have bought the house and then start to realize how wonderful it is. I mean, you're forgetting all the negative aspects. So so these four theories should seem in that perspective. And then there's one other element, and that is that might be a coincidence, but I don't think it is. We are great at finding patterns in data, more than any other species. So if I give you 80 um, uh, red circles and 20 green circles and put them in a random order, so there's no pattern at all, you will still try to find a pattern. Any other species will think more rationally, and they will say, well, it's just the majority that wins. Now, if you put all these aspects, I've just summarized uh, six chapters of the book, if you put that all together, you might say there might be another explanation why we're so good at language. And perhaps what children are doing is basically taking advantage of what is already present in there, the language system itself. And then you can argue, well, the words in language are arbitrary. We can talk about anything. We can put them in any order. But that doesn't turn out to be the case. So a very simple example if I ask, well, we can do this test. If I ask you to name an object that is high in the environment and an object that is low in the environment, so for instance, attic and basement, then as a language user, you can say attic and basement or basement and attic, you can put them in any order. It doesn't turn out to be random. There's a very fixed order. You always put the high stuff first and the low stuff second. And that makes sense. If you think about top and down, uh, we say top and down, not down and top, uh, or up and under, we don't say under and up. Um, But it it also works with nouns. So bumper and tire is more frequent than tire and bumper. Hmm. I can give you, that. that's just word order, I can give you a whole bunch of examples that language is not arbitrary. What may happen with children is that they're picking up on these patterns. Um, So they basically use the environment that they see put that in language and in language structures they're used in. And we use language as sort of a shortcut to memory and cognition. Mm. 
gosh, I just explained 360. You don't have to buy the book now. That was too much. You should have teased it a little bit more. The end. <laughs> well, it, it, is, it is similar, I think, without getting into the linguistic rabbit hole, you know, looking at the work that I've looked at in conversation analysis of, you know, these, these, these uh, you know, language or these structures of talk and interaction, you know, these mm-hmm. preference orders, you know, one of the things, at least in you know, American culture is lists of three, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people don't usually go with two words or four words, they end up with three words. And yeah. so you see these patterns emerge and then people adopt as the preference order for performing some kind of, you know, linguistic act, right? And we kind of build those in and then meaning is derived not from the words themselves or from people's interpretations individually of the words, but from the, you know, the, the coordinated activity of that practice in context, which gives rise to meaning. Right. That's right. But, but I can, I, I mean, it, it goes even further than that. And, and I think um, we scientists haven't looked at it um, enough. But if you give me Lord of the Rings, I will give you a map of Middle Earth with the longitude and latitude of the cities mentioned in Lord of the Rings. In other words, from language itself, the way it's structured, um, a very sim- simple algorithm can basically extract the visual representation of how it's um, used in language. And that suggests that there's far more meaning encoded in language than we've ever thought before. Yeah, can you break that down? I thought that was actually one of the coolest, the coolest elements that I'm um, looking at and, and how you did that for both Middle Earth and also just the U- looking at U.S. states too. And, and mm-hmm. this helps us solve this Chinese room problem, um, in essence, yeah, of exactly. how would you figure out anything like that? Yeah, yeah so it's, it, um, uh, it's actually a very simple um, algorithm. So what you can do if you have enough language, but you can also build smart algorithms that can do this with a very uh, limited language, but you basically count a number of times two cities are used in, let's say, the same sentence. So um, let's let's look at a map of the United States. So you take the New York Times, if, as we've done, uh, you take the 50 largest cities or the 100 largest cities, it doesn't matter, and you count the number of times these cities co-occur. Now, if you have done that, you basically have a matrix. I'm not going to get too technical, but you basically have a matrix. And you can use a very simple statistical technique to map that matrix onto a um, visual map. And... If you then look at the XY coordinates of those locations, it, there's a, a pretty good correlation with the actual locations of these cities. Now you can say, well, perhaps that has to do with a map of the United States as we thought first when we, when we tried this out, but that doesn't turn out to be the case. You can do this for basically any country. You might say, particularly in this radio show, you might say, well, but English is a very peculiar language and the magic lies in English. That's not true. You can do it with Chinese. You can do it with Arabic. We've done it for the Middle East. We've done it for China, but you can even take it as far as uh, Middle Earth. So all you do is count a number of times these words come together. So, um, and what you will find is that Boston and New York, if you take the New York Times, are more frequent than say Boston and San Francisco. And San Francisco and Los Angeles are more frequent than say San Francisco and Miami. Um, And based on these frequency differences, you basically get a map of any country that you'd like. Hmm. I think think that's that's really cool, but you can call it um, uh, the weird linguist who comes up with this. But I think that's fascinating because it suggests that there's so much in language that we haven't really captured yet. So that that's it sounds like so if if we then think about translating this to a super basic concept, it's that on one level, because because it kind of supporting one of your theses that there's the patterns of meaning built into language itself, right? So in this case, there's a spatiality that's like framed into how we like how language is encoded itself, right? That's right. Yeah, but it's not just spatiality. Um, but so so the idea is that. If you think that the high-low example that I just gave, so attic basement is more uh, uh, frequent than basement attic, or, or if you did it for a large number of items, um, then you can say, well, why is it that order? And as some um, scholars have argued, well, it's because we have eyes in our head and not in our feet. So perhaps it's the case that the way we view the world um, has translated itself in the encodings in language, because that's easiest, that's the easiest mapping. And because we're using language, uh, the mapping outside also becomes easier. So it's sort of a, a visual representation encoded in language and language representation, again, coded in a visual representation once we use it. One of the things I liked about your work looking at it is, you know, for us, it's like really interesting stuff. And, 
you know, if you can tell me like the longitude and latitude of Middle Earth, that tells me a lot about you as a person. I'm like, oh, you're one of those people who knows well, all about that. But like, what's like, what's the like, what's the so what about it, and how your work gets into like the so what? Okay, so we have this yeah. this knowledge. You know, the leap between that as an academic exercise yep. and into an actual applied practical exercise with real meaning and impact for people, especially around learning experiences. Is, is a question. part that a lot of academics miss. They miss that like that mm -hmm. next step. And you just gave the introduction to the last chapter because um, a, a lot of this stuff indeed sounds like sort of an ivory tower discussion. And uh, people might say, okay, as a scientist, you're having a lot of fun, but uh, what's, uh, uh, what comes out of it? Uh, indeed, the so what question. And so first of all, I do not believe in a gap between fundamental science and applied science. I don't think that gap exists. It may look at the surface as if it exists, but any fundamental science question will ultimately have an applied answer. The only difference is that I don't know when it's going to have an applied answer, but ultimately right. it will have. But, but with regards to questions in this book, um, well, let me give the, the Lord of the Rings example. You can say, well, that's fun. You can get the New York Times into a map of the United States. Or you can Lord of the Rings um, into a map of Middle Earth. Uh, but if you can do that, you can help uh, central intelligence agencies um, scanning social media uh, language and basically help to understand where there might be terrorist hotspots. And if you think that's too aggressive, um, we've also applied this to archaeologists. Because if you, for instance, take the Indescript, um, we, we are now able to make predictions on excavation sites or cities that are or locations that are mentioned in the Indescript on the basis of basically an identical technique. So um, this is just, I would say, almost evidence that a fundamental science question can find applications that we've never thought of before. I mean, we didn't start doing this, developing these algorithms and see whether it works because we thought, hey, let's help some archeologists. In fact, we started with a theory of language um, or rather psychology, uh, psychology of language and said, okay, might, might this actually work? And it worked for New York Times. Then it worked for Wikipedia, Chinese Wikipedia. It worked for a variety of other things. Then it worked for Lord of the Rings. And we said, okay, so what might be applications? Well, these are two of them, but I can give many more. Unfortunately for the archaeologists, I don't think anybody ever starts out thinking, how can we help the archaeologists? Um, but, but, but we um, uh, start started asking that question after we thought <laughs> this may actually work. I think that's cool. I mean, I, this is really thinking outside the box, I think. Well, it's exciting because not only for the archaeologists, because someone's thinking about them, which I'm sure they appreciate for a change, but also this, this way of investigating the world around us through the things that we already have available, right? That's right. Plus, we might actually learn something from archaeologists. Archaeologists may learn something from linguists, which may transfer to psychologists, which helps anthropologists. So it's sort of one happy scientific family. Yeah, I think what's cool, too, is that, um, and I wonder to your extent about this, too, and, and I, I also like and, and I, I agree with the idea that we don't have to have these boundaries between kind of basic and applied work and how might we ask questions around application. Do you feel that the fact that we can use algorithms and, and basically number crunching in ways that we couldn't before, that's also helped in this case uh, kind of be more creative about the applications we could do? Um, yeah, perhaps, except that I would argue um, that it's, well, particularly when it comes to language, that the magic doesn't lie in the algorithms, the magic mm -hmm. lies in, in language. So quite often we think, well, if we just put in enough data and start number crunching, we'll get there. And, and I would agree as a data scientist, uh, one cap that I wear, I would agree. Um, but I'm not satisfied with that. I would like to understand the mechanisms. I want to understand what's going on. And too often, that's not really happening in um, data science or not happening enough. Mm -hmm. And I think the future of AI will actually go that direction. Explainable AI will become increasingly important. Okay. Yeah, love it. I, I want to so hear more about this too, because I think this is one of the big questions that um, if, you know, if we have tech listeners on the show or, or folks that are also data scientists or lean into, we use algorithms to do our work. Um, this idea of both explainable AI and also then basically not treating algorithms as black boxes, I think is fundamentally important for both transparency of, of how we do the work that we do, um, but then also, you know, making sure that as we get deeper and in, in better into more complex AI capacities, 
um, that we we can ensure more of a just and equitable future in terms of how we use data in essence, right, to make decisions. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about both explainable AI is like, is that one of the directions that we're going? And how do we make sure that we do that um, and that we keep kind of the the mechanisms visible and make sure that we put that work out there and not just run to the next billion dollar unicorn idea in a tech company um, for a social graph? I, I, I think um, in general, well, for one thing, in, in what I try to do in the book is to explain neural networks um, because a lot of fear with regards to AI comes from, well, ignorance with regards to the field. So what I try to do is explain neural networks as simply as possible. And many of my AI colleagues would probably say, oh, come on. Um, but then I would say, well, I think it's more important that people have a general concept of neural networks than sort of leave them in the dark and have scary mathematical formulas to, um, mm. to work with. Um, but to answer your question, I think as a society, we don't have another choice. It's not prescriptive. Make your algorithms uh, clear so we know what's going on. But often when we're dealing with data, uh, and particularly behavioral data, and increasingly it's going to be, be behavioral data, for those algorithms not to make major mistakes, we probably have to understand the mechanisms. Otherwise, we can never correct them. Let me give you a very um, silly example, but it's an example that I use frequently. So imagine automated vehicles. Um, imagine that I got a performance on these self-driving vehicles of 75% last year and 85% this year. Now, as a data scientist, I would say, hooray, I just bought 10%. I should be really, really excited. Um, but from an explainable AI point of view, you can argue, no, you should be very disappointed, for instance, because the 15% only includes accidents with humans. So the 85% does not include humans, but the 15% includes humans. So if you only look from a perspective without the mechanisms, then you might be happy about things that you should not be happy about at all, mm. uh, because you want to know why it's performing so badly on humans. Mm. Well, that, that makes good sense too. Um, and so it's accounting for, you know, what is the what are the data doing, right? And in terms of where, and what are the, the parameters in which we're saying this is useful and helpful. Um, but adding a social layer on top of that, almost in, in this case too, and saying that the where the accidents take place makes a difference, right? <laughs> yeah, um, but, 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 but um, uh, what I see too often, more in Europe than the United States, but um, it's uh, actually, there was a, uh, a news item uh, yesterday, I, I think on the BBC, um, that, talked about the AI race between um, the United States and China, and this was actually mentioned also for the US, that um, we are placing a lot of emphasis on the ethics discussion. And mm. I mean, as a scientist, ethics is everything that I base my work on. Um, at the same time, however, it's kind of weird that when it comes to AI, the second word people mention is ethics. Um, but when I do my psycholinguistics or psychology work, it's sort of assumed that ethics is a big part of it. So mm -hmm. it, it, it may be the case that the ethics discussion is sort of a, an escape route to not talk about the real issue, namely AI algorithms. And, and I'm not saying that ethics is unimportant. All I'm saying is that it's worthwhile at least having the knowledge on AI before we divert the discussion to something that is basically unrelated to AI specifically. Mm. That's that's fascinating, and that, that's okay. You've got you got my wheels turning. That's actually great to think about too, and I I definitely want to one. Um, would you mind sharing that article with us? Because I'd love to check it out too. Sure. Um, because I think that's actually a fundamentally important point too. Because we also talk about doing, uh, you know, research as social scientists ethically, also, right? And like that's part of. It, but you're right. It's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind. It's sort of one built in through academia. We have to you know have an institutional yeah. review board. But then on top of that, even in business too, there's some level of um, you know, what is our code of work in essence and like, where's our data from? So that, that's interesting. But when, when people mention, I don't know, um, um, customer surveys or psychology research or linguistics or anthropology or all the fields that we've discussed so far, um, it's not the first thing that comes in mind, like what are the dangers and what might be mm -hmm. the ethical issues, et cetera. It's sort of assumed. I mean, we're supposed to work at least as scientists, but I hope that companies do the same thing. We're supposed to work ethically. But when it comes to AI, any discussion on AI immediately moves to ethics. And I don't understand why. I mean, it's a part of the discussion, obviously. I think, I think the answer is Facebook because people are looking at 
you know, you know, policing, policing algorithms for predictive policing. Facebook, they tweak it one way. You're looking at kittens. If you tweak it another way, you're storming the Capitol building on January 6th. Right. But that's that, not necessarily an AI ethics issue. That's a Facebook ethics issue. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like saying, you know, it's I'm not going to go to the people that create the hammer about the ethics of a hammer. It's a tool, right? How someone deploys that tool is, you know, in the person and their activity. But I think here with AI, that AI is not a hammer that can go pick up anywhere. It's a very particular tool that is held by certain you know, groups or organizations for use and deployment. So that's why it's, it's almost synonymous that yes, it's a, it's Facebook and AI as ethics is because not everyone has AI to use on their own. No, no. And and I understand why the discussion uh, comes up. Uh, I, I, I totally get that. But then the discussion is more about a small number of AI companies um, that operate in a certain way then a discussion about the discipline, artificial intelligence and ethics. It's, I, I think it's a somewhat, I understand how the discussion comes about, um, but I think you can also argue, well, uh, because of the issues with Facebook, we should put more time and efforts in AI algorithms so we can prevent companies from um, abusing the system. Mm. That would be an entirely different discussion. Yeah, I guess the question then becomes well, who 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 holds that, right? Mm-hmm. And as people right now are talking about with Facebook, at least in the United States, about increasing regulation or breaking up Facebook because it's too big and too powerful and has too much. Um, or at least be certain. So it's it's not one or the other. Um, so I think those things uh, may have to be done as well. But it might also be investing more time and effort in the knowledge behind artificial intelligence so it's never going to be the case that one country or one company has more knowledge than the rest of the world. And I think um, I fear that more than um, the powers of AI. So it's, it's, it's very similar to the way you're describing it, you know, the arms race, right? That it's yeah. Not, yeah. not quite mutually assured destruction, but if everyone has nukes, no one can use them. Kind of thing. Well, and I, so well, this may be a good example. So, so if you if you think about automated drones, so drones that you uh, basically launch and they decide you have no influence, they decide on bombing a city. Um, as a society, we may say this is not what we want. Well, first of all, I would say, but I do want to have the knowledge. I don't want to build the drones, but I do want to have the knowledge because if that same drone starts to attack me, I want to be able to have the algorithms to do something about that. Um, and secondly, what if those drones are used to put um, food packages in parts of the world that need it in the most efficient way possible? Then suddenly the ethics discussion gets turned around. So you right. never have control over how um, scientific knowledge, or in this case, algorithms, get used for the wrong reason. I mean, no matter how hard we may try, the only way is to not develop these algorithms and then somebody else will take over. Um, so I'm not putting my hand in the sand and say, well, as a scientist, I can do whatever I want and um, I have no um, uh, responsibility. But what I'm saying is that I always want to be ahead or we should right. always be ahead um, of the game in terms of knowledge, because that what count, that's what counts. You're, you're saying food packages. I was just thinking about my Amazon deliveries, but yours is better. Mm. I was being um, Yeah, I, I prefer the food packages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because you just gave the example for... Two wrong reasons. One is um, it's only a very small part of the world that can actually do without the Amazon packages. Plus, you're putting even more um, power in the hands of a company. Well, if we get if we have Amazon packages for the world, then we solve both problems at the same time. I get my package faster, and they can get their food. Yeah, if they're not all Amazon, then I'm totally. And I love Amazon, but um, <laughs> I don't want to put all the knowledge into the hands of one company. We've been talking about like some like really like big, you know, issues, but one of the things I, I may want to make sure we talk about enough here is also your work applying this to, to learning, because, mm-hmm. you know, when I first heard you speak is about learning experiences, using AI in an adaptive way to respond to student needs that create um, more opportunity to engage students in learning on terms that make sense for them and to the content. And, and, you know, can you talk a bit about, you know, beyond the food packages and the Amazon Prime yeah, delivery? Course. Yeah. About oh, that, that part of the learning piece. Yeah. Um, so so when I worked in the United States, um, so, so I did my PhD in, in Edinburgh and Scotland. 
And I had sort of a, a, a top three list of scientists in the United States that I wanted to work with. And um, one was Art Grazer, or is Art Grazer. And he um, was working on intelligent tutoring systems. So basically computers that can interact with students and um, extract meaning. So there's coherence in the, in the discussion that we uh, had before on language creating meaning that um, extracts meaning out of students' uh, input and decides on pedagogical moves. Now, these systems at the time were sort of in their initial um, uh, shape, uh, initial shape, because artificial intelligence, the way we know it now, had to uh, uh, be further developed. And then um, when I moved to the Netherlands uh, a couple of years ago, um, in fact, about two, three years ago, SpaceBuzz, a nonprofit organization, uh, came up to me because of my work in virtual reality. And they said, well, we have this idea of building a rocket ship and launching children into space. And don't worry. My kids? My virtual kids? reality. No, I'm not. A, I want my kids launching this. If we can do okay, that, okay. I have teenagers. Max, I need them launched. Then, then there are times <laughs> that I would launch. Yeah, if I think about my children, there are times that I would like to have a one trip to Mars. But then, with, as soon as that thought comes up in my mind, I'm going to retract it, and I would like to have them back. So I don't think I'll. You're will a good dad. Um, but so, so SpaceBuzz um, said, well might it be possible to let children experience the overview effect? So that's this claustrophobic effect that um, astronauts experience. So they're high up in space, look at the look at planet Earth and realize, gosh, that very small blue little marble, um, that's all we have. If we screw that up, there's nothing left. There's literally nothing. And that feeling, any astronaut reports, and it's it's extremely profound feeling. And when they get back to Earth, they sort of want to do something for the planet. And SpaceBuzz said, "Well, might that be possible? Might it be possible to let uh, children experience that?" So they start actually building a rocket ship, and um, uh, put seats up there, like eight seats in the rocket ship where children sit down. They put on the VR glasses and are launched into space, get into an orbit around the Earth, and guided by an actual astronaut. And um, when they come back, they they basically go back into their school class and. There's a pre-flight and a post-flight program. So the pre-flight program, they are trained to become astronauts. They have um, oven mitts and need to put puzzles together, or they uh, are hanging upside down on a balance beam to experience gravity, fun exercises like that. And once they pass for the astronaut training, only then the rocket ship arrives. Um, And, well, everybody passes, but don't let that get that out. And then um, after they have experienced that um, space journey, um, in the school, they can give press conferences to friends and family and parents, et cetera. That's so awesome. This, this is really cool. Plus, um, we sort of do this um, altruistically. Um, we They don't have to pay a penny for that experience. We try to keep it free, which is not a good business model, as we um, have found out, but it's at least a great way to um, serve as many children as possible. So currently, some 25,000 children have experienced this. Some 400 schools have signed up. We've been to the United States, Houston, Washington. We're now going to France and Italy and, and Hungary. And if you go online and search for Space Bus, you will find very cool movies on, on how um, children experience this virtual reality journey. But it goes a step further. So we, given my experience in the United States with intelligent tutoring systems, um, we could have those astronauts become interactive. So you can have actually a child that says, well, I'm scared going up in space and have the astronaut come over and give personalized educational experience. You can basically have them say, well, don't worry, I've done this before, everything will be all right. Whereas if you have another child who says, well, is is this it? Uh, I mean, I'd like a little bit more excitement. The astronaut can give a totally different uh, personalized um, experience. Now you can also, in space, you can have them do some fun exercises, sort of put serious games into the mix. And in my work on neurophysiology, you can actually measure their learning experiences. 
so they can become the, the, the virtual worlds, the simulated worlds can become interactive with what the child actually experiences. So a child that finds space a lot of fun, um, they are launched into space and get some other activities in space nudged towards some areas they might not be interested in. And if I'm not interested in space, I might get a topic that I'm first interested in and then slowly but surely moved into another direction. And basically this is the, the idea is let's have a critical look at our educational system. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's broken, but let's, if, if we just stand still for a second and wonder about an educational system when we started from scratch, I don't think that educational system would right. look identical to the current system. Right. And that's sort of my, my academic view on the space bus collaboration. Um, let's ask some critical questions, not to um, start out with saying, well, I have the right answer, um, but starting from, well, are we doing this right? If we look deep inside the system, are we doing this the right way? And I don't think we don't. Right. So, for instance, if you think about school classes, uh, why is it the case that we have different subjects? Why are these subjects not intertwined? So if we bring, if I bring this back to language, um, you can have a mathematics of language. You can learn mathematics through language, or you can uh, learn language through mathematics. That's likely to be more fun because you have interconnections. Right. Plus, somebody not interested in math can actually be nudged towards math and somebody very excited about math, but not language can be nudged towards language. So there are these endless opportunities that weren't possible before, but with new technologies like virtual reality, serious games, intelligent tutoring systems, they now do become possible. Do you find that that if we think about some of the new tools that are, that are available in terms of AI learning and, and online tutoring systems, that, uh, or I guess, is it your hope that we can use these as ways to both engage critically and then think about what are some of the systemic issues. I guess to what extent, my question is this maybe, to what extent um, do we have the capacity to both you know, critically think about and address some of the systemic issues such as, I think it's a great example of why are we siloing subjects versus showing the interaction between them um, in like providing a tool, whether it's like space buzz or something else. Um, are these tools ways for us to do that, I guess? Can, can we both like provide an AI tutoring uh, experience for students at the same time as addressing some of the systemic issues. Absolutely. And I think this is the first time in history that this is actually possible. So in the past, when, when we were um, together with Art Grace and when we were developing AutoTutor, the intelligent tutoring system, um, when people wanted to use it, they had to have um, a particular computer, particular um, setup. They had to install particular software. They could only use it in a particular way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but now if something gets developed in Japan, it can be used in the United States um, at the same time or in the Netherlands at the same time. So it's a totally different um, playing field right now. And when people ask me, ask me what is the biggest um, challenge to move this ahead, um, 10 years ago, my answer would have been, well, it's the hardware or it's the software right. or things are too expensive, etc. That's not the case anymore. The biggest challenge is the organization. Apparently, as a world society, we are unwilling to give the best to the next generation. And, and that's not hmm. um, um, a sneer at, at educators and teachers. I'm one myself. Um, but if you, if you think about gaming opportunities, particularly serious gaming opportunities, um, and you think about uh, reaching a younger generation, well, it may be um, through games. Right. In, in Europe, we currently have the discussion on teacher shortages, and I know that that discussion is also present in the United States. So how can you make sure that you are reducing the pressures on educators? Well, one may, way might be to introduce technologies in the classroom, not to replace teachers, not at all, but to allow teachers to do the stuff that they like most. And that's probably giving personal attention, helping individuals rather than sort of giving the general story because systems can do that. I think for sure, and I'll say it as an educator, that one of the biggest challenges to moving education forward is the institution of education itself. And it's, you know, very, as we would say in sociology, Weberian, going back to Max Weber and bureaucracy, it's that it's created its own, you know, cage, its own yep. iron cage in which it can escape. 
And so at my own school, where we do better than most at integrating across arts and sciences and business, there's still a lot of resistance to fully commit because of the accreditors or because of the graduation requirements or because of the general ed requirements or because of teacher contracts, professor contracts, and all these things, when we know what the right answer is, what the right ideas could be, can't get there. You know, we can't have people team teaching because how would we then allocate their FTEs in their contract for right. uh, for payment? Well, is that the, well, yeah, is that the you, primary you thing? Some, you give some good examples. So, so the scientific literature shows that um, student evaluations of teachers um, are, are basically meaningless. They don't say much about the quality of the course. Um, you also mentioned um, uh, the um, accreditation uh, 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 process. So I've never given an exam in my life, and I hope I will never have to give an exam in my life. Um, if I have to give one, it's certainly not going to be a multiple choice. Um, it's going to be essay-like. But instead, at um, universities, I would expect that students are able to write scientific papers, not that they're able to sort of um, uh, spit out the um, uh, facts that they've learned. I mean, nobody's going to remember them. Uh, what I do expect is that they can critically evaluate scientific literature, that they can write a coherent uh, uh, piece. Now, if you, um, if you say, well, but that's going to cost a lot of time for educators to ask some few hundred students to write a research paper, then my answer would be, not really if you use technology to help evaluate those essays. So you can have a tool that basically gives um, a sort of an automated essay grader that gives feedback on the quality of an essay. And then us teachers can check whether that computer tool actually made some major mistakes. We can have sort of a, uh, our own evaluation of the essay and see how much that matches. That's going to save a lot of time. Plus, you're actually... Um, uh, playing a role in the learning process, the important learning process. And that's not whether you know facts X or Y. Wikipedia is for that. <laughs> that's a great point. Is there, so um, this is a deep cut, but basically I, I was interested, I think it was in the, the last chapter of your book, but you mentioned the, a project that you did, I think with the University of Maryland, but as like this co-metric like, is the analysis on text cohesion yeah. in language. Is, yeah. is that what you're talking about here? Is this idea of like, how do we measure yeah. the coherence of an argument or statements and sentences? Yeah, so so a long time ago, this was actually together with Art Gracer and Danielle McNamara. Um, Danielle has done work on reader comprehension and kinds of text. And uh, I've always been fascinated by that work. But I told Art and Danielle, I said, well, but, but why haven't we implemented that in a computer? And then we looked each other in the eye and said, Gosh, yeah, why haven't we? So we thought, you know what? Let's let's try to build this. So we built this computer tool. In fact, um, at Tilburg University, we now have a similar tool that measures um, the quality of um, language um, in some 400 different um, uh, dimensions. And colleagues um, at the University of Colorado have done that with uh, an automated essay grader. So um, in the late 1990s, they basically created the tool um, where students could submit their essay and the system gave feedback on that essay. So no teacher involvement. And all the student did was pick up on that um, computer feedback, modify their essay and submit it again. So all the work was basically offloaded on the system and the students. Students liked it because I'd rather get feedback from a system than from an actual human that may be somewhat grumpy. Um, plus, they had continuously the opportunity to improve their work, which um, also is kind of ironic about the current system. I do an exam and I get a pass or a fail. And if I get a fail, well, so be it. Then I move on, which is kind of weird because there should be an opportunity for me to correct it. And if you, even if you have that opportunity, there should be plenty of opportunities to correct yourself because it's a learning process, right? It's not so much... Um, an execution of a particular verdict, whether you are good enough or bad enough. Ideally, what you want towards graduation is that everybody, not the selected view, but everybody is at the same level. Some might have to work a little bit harder towards that. Some might have to work a little bit less. But what you want is getting everybody at that level. And something like an automated, automated essay grader will allow you to do that. Mm. One of the things that, fascinating. Yeah. One of, one of the things I also think about, though, is you know, students at a university should be able to write scientific papers. And I, I start to wonder, like, why? Because they're not going to be, a lot of my, none of my students are going to be scientists, right? I mean, well, they, they, yeah. and so, and so like, is there, are there alternative ways 
to allow students to demonstrate understanding, comprehension, integration of materials that aren't just the, you know, quote unquote research paper, which is, you know, has a certain kind of format and, and mode of delivery that also gets them excited and also gets the, 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 the teacher excited because now the teacher is learning at the same time. Yeah. So, so I'm a little bit, um, well, in general, I'm stubborn, but particularly with, when it comes to this topic, I'm, I'm, I'm stubborn. So any students I've ever taught, I'm um, uh, trying to educate to become full professor. Now that's nonsense. I know that. I mean, first of all, those students probably never want to do that. Uh, they look at me and think, oh my God, if that's my future, I'm out. I mean, that's an incredible misrate because I'm imagining all the students you taught, how many have made full professor? <laughs> no, I, I, know, I know. But but if you, th- what there, there's a point to this. I know they won't become full professor, but I think um, academic universities, and, and this is important, right? Academic universities, I'm not saying um, uh, colleges um, in, in, the, in the Netherlands, we have universities of applied sciences. That's a different kettle of fish. And that's equally important, but academic universities, Um, I think should teach academic knowledge that requires critical thinking skills, that requires putting um, a piece together, et cetera. So I I totally agree with you that um, uh, uh, there's more to it than just writing academic papers. Um, But I think my students should at least be able to do that or have learned that skill and then they never have to use it again. But I promise you that critical thinking skill that they have then acquired, they will use for the rest of their lives. As long as critical thinking is part of that process, because I know plenty of academics who write papers where critical thinking seems to be completely devoid of, of, of presence, right? So I, I think- oh, they, 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 they weren't my students. Right, absolutely oh. not. It's, it's <laughs> not. It's not that, you know, to be, to do an academic paper, you need critical thinking, you should. Yeah. But that right. critical thinking should be foundational no matter what it is you're, you're, you're developing or creating. And going back to the gaming industry, right, we can talk about that. You know, it's, to what extent is critical thinking part of game design, game development, you know, the, you know writing narratives um, and engaging, you know, tropes that are traditional within a different, certain industry. Critically thinking about those tropes can lead to better outcomes. Um, but I would in, I would go design. a step further. I mean, w- w- perhaps we're just educating educating uh, citizens, um, right. even if they don't find the job in the area that they had anticipated, they still need some education to, to become critical citizens and know what's right. going on. I mean, particularly in the world of uh, fake news, this seems to be very um, important. So, and, and just for the record, I'm not arguing that every big, everybody should become an academician. Certainly not. I would be the last person arguing that. But if you have an academician teach an academic course, then I think it's kind of weird if you give them multiple choice tests because it's easier for you as a teacher to ask them for facts. Well, I think that's definitely that's definitely true. And it's it's often we I know we talked about this before when we chatted, but you know, what I, we call I think we're talking about praying to the altar of assurance of learning. And it goes back to the tail wagging the dog that, well, why are we doing, you know, multiple choice? Well, because we want to make sure across different sections that students are learning the same. So we want to create this experimental design that we can be sure learning is happening and we're going to use a tool that's not good for learning, mm-hmm. which exactly. is a multiple choice exam. And you- well, and, 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 and there's no, I mean, if you, if you ask the average um, uh, school child or the, av- the average students, um, they sort of feel like, uh, well, school, university is not fun. I mean, many of them, not right. all of them, many of them. Um, and, and, at the same time, I understand that because if you force them into, well, um, you should be, in, you ought to be interested in this particular topic. Well, if you tell me be interested in this topic, I'm the first person to say, well, I'm not. Um, if on the other hand, um, you basically give them a lot of freedom and say, well, you choose the topic. Um, these are the boundaries, but you choose the topic. I bet you can get everybody excited about um, a critical thinking exercise. Sure. As long as it's their hobby that they can work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the, the good points too, that is some of the magic is that as long as we link it into what people are already interested in, whether it's mapping out the cities of Middle Earth, um, you know, that gives us a really great example of then thinking critically about how does language in the the, you know, the the in this case, like how close to words show up together, give us a way of then critically thinking about how do we frame thinking, you know. So I think that that's great too. And I think that makes sense. That is actually one of the big challenges too. Where it's it's that 
you know, how can we use technology to help relieve some of the teaching pressures? So one, we can make sure that folks are getting to the same area of, of content learning and critical thinking, but then, you know, do we, do we, so do we, do we, do we get rid of multiple choice tests or, or sort of like standardized, sorry, get rid of standardized, uh, you know, measurement tools, I guess, is one of the questions. This is what I, I kind of struggle with too, that I love the idea of a, a, tool that helps us understand uh, the coherence and, and cogency of an argument and an essay is, is I think, brilliant. Um, is that enough, basically? Can we then say, all right, we're done with, we don't need multiple choice tests. We don't need you to regurgitate the, what is the cell wall made of? Um, but rather, let's think about how we, you know, I don't know. I guess, I don't know. How, how do we put together both facts and measure critical thinking? Well, I mean, um, I think if I now were to ask to do my GRE again, or my SAT again, <laughs> I'm not sure I would pass. So yeah, that me either. either means that we're doing something seriously wrong in those tests, that they should be um, uh, tougher. And, and I I, passed, I I didn't have to do a GRE because my I did my education in the Netherlands, but we have similar systems right. uh, here. Hmm. Um, so, um, um, so that means that I passed those uh, tests for the wrong reason, or there's something wrong in these tests. I mean, we're sort of studying for the tests. We pass them. And uh, well, I, I should only talk about myself, but I think it's also true for, for you, Gary and Adam. I'm not sure whether you would pass them. And that says something, no. right? I, 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 yeah, I can assure you, I did, I did very badly. Not badly. I did average on the GRE. I did very well in the sociology topic GRE. And then I applied the sociology programs and they said, yeah, we don't look at the sociology GRE. I went, well, but that's like what I'm trying to do is that, yeah, we only look at the general GRE. We don't look at the special topic GRE in the topic that you're applying for. I was like, that's, that's, you understand how insane that is, right? And they're like, here's a question for you. Why did you do so well on the sociology section? Because I was interested in it and I care Mm -hmm. about it. So imagine that now your education uh, was sociology nudging you to the areas that you were not really interested in, in sort of a playful fashion. You didn't even know you were learning, I don't know, math, if you didn't like math, Um, um, or you got sociology problems applied to math. That currently doesn't happen. Right. So, So there are a lot of and I'm not saying that I, that I'm the last person to argue, well, I have all the answers. But as a scientist, I think I ought to try to find answers to unusual questions. Hmm. Yep, I can agree. I can agree with that. I think that's why, why, why are we using tests? Why do we have particular topics in school? Why, why is it the case that a school day starts very early in the morning, then ends late in the afternoon, and then it's over? Then the next day you start working again. Why is it the case that Friday afternoon arrives and, well, you can have some time off? And as my children say Sunday night, tomorrow we have to go back to work. I mean, that's silly. I mean, that's just... And at the same time, if you think about science museums, um, many children, adults, love to go to science museums. So you can ask yourself the question, why is it that they like that kind of learning, but generally don't like um, school, university kind of learning? And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm exaggerating just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that people don't enjoy learning at all. I'm just saying, well, is there room for improvements? And I think there is. I was just talking about this yesterday and, and I was doing a thing on Twitch and live streaming for a conference. And one of the points I made is it's not that they find the content boring. It's just that they find you boring. <laughs> and and yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I was making it as a joke, but the idea is it's, you can take the same content, you know, deliver it differently, like a science museum or like a VR simulation or like mm-hmm. a game or, or any of these other ways we've talked about and students are going to be engaged. And so very often, why do people teach it the way that they do? Because that's how they were taught and that's how they were taught. And it becomes a reduction to the expectation of the culture that, you know, this is how we do it. PowerPoint slides look this way. Language is used this way. And going back, I love this, this idea about the unusual question, asking the question, why? why, why do we have to do it this way? What other ways might we think about doing it to achieve better outcomes, especially when we know the, that the tools we're using right now are not the best tools available? Yeah, so, so when we develop these intelligent tutoring systems, we often got um, uh, teachers um, uh, complaining. They said, well, you're, you're building systems that can replace us. 
And at the time, I thought that was a compliment because they um, considered these systems to be much, much better than, than <laughs> I thought they were. They weren't at the level of replacing at all. And now my answer is a little bit more provocative when I'm building these systems and I get that issue. So if they say, well, you're building systems that are replacing uh, me, then I say, well, then it's about time that they replace the, that they replace you. Uh, because apparently you're doing something that these systems can do better. Um, if you don't evolve, then um, it starts to become a problem. And I think good teachers, it will take quite a while, if ever, um, if these systems can actually replace the very good teachers. And again, I'm not saying, well, the, the um, uh, teachers are not putting in enough time and effort. Um, I'm saying that they can probably, their work can be made easier and they can do more of the things that they would like to do if technology complements what they're currently doing. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that's fundamentally important too. And that's actually one of the messages that is, uh, I think important for us as scientists and, and folks working in different industries with technology is how do we help build that narrative with, in this case, educators and teachers that we're not here to use technology to replace, but we are looking for ways that both can ease the the burden of of the teaching process by basically tackling some of the, you know, systematic um, and rote in in kind of the 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 basically the multiple choice versions of of tasks that need to get finished and completed through the teaching process. Um, and also like seeing evolution as part of that. I think it's really interesting too, because there is always, right, this other broader narrative, which we don't need to get into now, that, that people get con confused and scared about AI, right? And that's going to take jobs, blah, blah, blah. And this very untrue, but broad idea. But really, you know, what I hear you saying, and, and, and I agree with this notion too, is that we are basically dealing with evolution, right? And even the framework of how do we evolve both what, what roles are in work and society and how does technology help those roles evolve? Um, in ways that don't replace people, you know, but again, if there are certain tasks and other things that can be replaced, that's okay. But then building bridges that we can then, then you know, have the, the human side evolve as well, I think is, is fundamentally important. Um, yeah, so but it's, when, a, it's a crazy time. Yeah. When, when people um, express their fear about AI, I often show them uh, snippets from uh, New York Times articles from, I think, 18, well, late uh, 19th <laughs> century, where uh, the invention of the telegraph and the invention of the telephone um, is, is mentioned. So these are actual newspaper articles. And they literally state, well, this is the end of um, social gatherings. People will never go to church again. People will never gather uh, again because well, it's all taken over by technology. Um, well, it hasn't. I mean, there are still social gathering. COVID-19 has, uh, has showed how much we need social gatherings. Um, and I think the same is true for um, revolutions in AI. Of course, it's important to be cautious. And um, ethics, of course, it's going to be important. Um, and I do think that the type of professions uh, will change. I mean, people will have to learn extra things, et cetera. That, that's going to be clear, like was the case in the first, second, and third industrial evolution. Um, but I'm not too afraid yet that um, AI will be the end of uh, humanity. And the irony is that particularly those people warning for uh, the dangers of AI are people working in the areas where they could make a difference, the Microsofts, the Teslas, etc. Mm. So if you're that afraid of AI, I would say, well, stop with your company and um, you will make the world a better place. Um, I would not, that would not be my recommendation. Makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, well, I think it's a good spot to end, Max. I want to thank you so much for chatting. And again, folks, the book is called Keeping Words in Mind, How Language Creates Meaning. I'm, I'm letting you know that because I'm reading it off of Max's shelf right now. He has very kindly right. provided a book right behind him. A lot of post-it notes too. Are those, are those post-it notes? I mean, I have a lot of post-it notes that I end up never looking at again. Do you actually look at those frequently? That's true. No, this has right. to do with a grand proposal from last week where I had to put things together, making it coherent. And this shows my limitations of my mind, at least, that I need post-it notes to track <laughs> things. Well, it's good It's good for everyone to know that even if someone as brilliant as Max has post-it notes on his wall to try <laughs> to create coherence. Thank you, Gary. And so there's hope for all of us yet, maybe. Just, just need. I, I just have many colors of post-it notes to try to up my game. Um, mm -hmm. That's a good idea. I should color them. Yeah, that would make it even more impressive. There we go. But I, I'm <laughs> glad I could help out a little bit. 
Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks so much. much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks. We want to thank Dr. Max Lowersey, Professor in Cognitive Psychology and Artificial Intelligence at Tilburg University, for visiting the EXD studios to discuss his book, Keeping Those Words in Mind, and his other research on learning experiences and technology. You can find Max's information as well as more info on his research and books in our show notes. And as always, we'd love to know your thoughts on language, on meaning, on experience design. You know, what are the challenges that you face in terms of creating a shared meaning with customers or students, patients, users, or really any group that you work with? How do you see technology supporting, or let's be real, sometimes interfering with learning experience and teaching? Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign or on our LinkedIn page. We can't wait to get in conversation with you. And as always, we want to thank you for your continued support for the podcast. Big news, folks. We are approaching in a matter of a week, not many days, our two-year anniversary of the podcast. We actually... Yay! We actually recorded episode uh, in 2018, and then waited a full year to recording like the first full episode. So we're just counting really getting it warmed up, you know? just getting warmed up. So we're counting it November 15th, 2019, as our two-year anniversary. And reaching this anniversary not possible without you and your support. And we'd like to invite you to continue your support in your contributions, your ideas, and your financial offerings through any number of channels. You can always make a financial contribution to support the cost of the podcast through our website where you can find Buy Me a Coffee. You can find a link to that. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Experience by Design, please send us a message and we'd love to talk with you. And as Adam says, share your feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. As always, you can subscribe at our website, give us your email and we'll make sure to stay in contact with you. And as always, be happy, be well, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Experience by Design.